Welcome to the Evolution Exchange NHS podcast. We're here today bringing together technical leaders from across the NHS to talk about topics that matter to them, as well as challenges that they're facing today. I'm Louis and I'm your host today. Today we're joined by Charlotte, Martha, Jonathan and Lauren to discuss the topic of how to manage Frimley's ICB's current challenges whilst preparing for our future population health. The views expressed by the guests are their own and do not necessarily reflect an official position or policy of their organisations. So before we delve deeper today into the topic, let's work our way around the room with some introductions. Over to you first, Charlotte. Hi everyone, I'm Charlotte Jackson. I'm a Population Health Improvement Manager in the North East Hampshire and Farnham Place team of Frimley ICB. The subject of this podcast, managing the current demand whilst preparing for the future, it really resonates with me and with my role within the ICB. I'm very much focused around using data to help target our work, target resources to tackling health inequalities in the current population and managing that local demand but also looking forward to improving long-term health outcomes and well-being outcomes for our residents. So I suppose I come from this from a, a place of really being interested in that wider determinants of health, how that holistic approach can really improve people's health outcomes. Um, so we're always thinking about that bigger picture. If we continue to see rising obesity, if one in six people are smoking, more and more people living in mouldy, damp homes and struggling to put nutritious food on the table, then what impact is this going to have on people's quality of life and then on the, the demand in services? So in Frimley and in our place team in North East Hampshire and Farnham, we have a real core objective to improve healthy life expectancy. And that really is the core of our approach and thinking ahead to build prevention into our daily work so that we can we can do that whilst we're still managing um, the demands and challenges of today. Brilliant. Thank you, Charlotte. And next to come to Martha. Hello, I'm Martha Early. I'm the Programme Director for Partnerships and Communities, also in North East Hampshire and Farnham Place, which is part of NHS Brimley ICB. Um, my role is uh, working across five councils in our local uh, place area and pulling together some of the priorities that we in the NHS and the voluntary sector and those councils um, deem necessary. So, of course, we need a population uh, health approach in order to understand our wider population's needs and uh, invaluable community insights into understanding some of the areas that we might not necessarily be able to gain from, from the data. So, we locally have come up with several um, key priorities informed by, for example, joint strategic needs assessments um, and some of the OHID, Office for Health Improvement Disparities data, but also, as Charlotte was explaining, will, will be explaining, sorry, um, our connected care data platform and, of course, our community insights. And as uh, Charlotte was explaining, our uh, NHS Frimley um, priorities for the next five years are around increasing healthy life expectancy and reducing inequalities. And you'll see though that that theme in many of the uh, local plans, our local council plans and local um, priorities all the way through. And in order to do that, we need excellent population health data insights. Thank you. Great. And over to you, Jonathan. Hi, everybody. So, yeah, I'm Jonathan Shepherd, and I am Transformation and Senior System Commissioning Manager for North East Hampshire Farnham from the ICB. I guess where I'm coming at this from, so, so I'm a physio by background, uh, done all my work in the acute pretty much. This is the first role that I've taken outside of the acute. And I guess where I come at this from is when I was working through physio, I was seeing the same patients keep coming backwards and forwards and, and it must be better than this. We must be able to do better things for our patients. And I think what the population health approach gives us is an ability to, to look at our population and actually target resource where they need it most. So it's trying to take a more proactive approach rather than reactive. And, and my frustration at every level I've been at through qualifying as a physio, through management and things, is that it, we need to do things differently. Um, so I come at it from a very acute side. Like I said, this is my first role outside of here, but actually having the opportunity to influence 
people before they really get unwell and need the acute is is my passion and, and really where kind of I will be coming from for this podcast. Thanks, Jonathan. And uh, last but not least, Lauren. Thanks, Louis. My name's Lauren Pennington. I'm the Director of Operations and your Sense of Theme here at North East Hanson Farnham Place, part of NHS Rimley. Um, this is a really interesting subject for us and um, my colleagues have already touched on quite a few of the reasons why we're so passionate about this subject. Um, but for me, there was a couple of other drivers as well. Uh, so we all lived through the COVID-19 pandemic and we came out of it in a really different world, facing some really significant challenges. And actually life in the NHS isn't going to be getting any easier in the next few years to come. So we really needed to get back to basics, uh, to re-understand our population and to think about how do we do the best for them? How do we reprioritize? How do we re-engage? How do we re-hear their voice? And how do we realize that their world is different just as much as our world is different? And we had this hypothesis that there was something we were missing, that we weren't bringing together the information well enough. We work in a really complex geography that works with so many different partners, lots of different sources of information and insights, and there was no one place where it was all coming together. So what I was consistently seeing was that it felt like others knew their population better than we did, and things were coming to us that were a surprise. I wanted us to get on the front foot and to know our population really well and to be the ones advocating for them and telling their stories rather than someone else telling us their story. And I didn't want us to be complacent. I think if you work in the same area for a long time, I've been here for over 10 years, you can start making assumptions about what you think you know, and you start missing things. Um, and that was what was happening. So we wanted to try and do something different and try and reset our approach and challenge ourselves to do better. So that's where Charlotte's role comes in. And I'm sure she's going to explain a lot more about the approach we take and what successes we've had. But for me, there were some really clear personal drivers there about doing things better and doing things differently. Brilliant. Thanks, Lauren. Yeah, I think that's give us a really good context to, to each of you and where you fall into this topic today. Um, so we'll move on to today's topic. Again, that's how to manage current challenges whilst preparing for our future population health. I think we'll start off around Frimley's unique population health platform. Um, so I think we'll come to Charlotte first. Please explain to the listeners what this is and, and how you use it. Yeah, thank you. And first thing I, I would say is I think we're really lucky in Frimley to have access to this um, linked data set and a, a population health analytics platform that sits on top of that. So you'll hear us referring to Connected Care. So Connected Care System Insights is our population health analytics platform. And it combines data from primary care, from secondary care, from mental health, from community care, and soon we'll have social care data within that that platform as well. And this patient level pseudonymized and anonymized data set enable us to really drill down so we can look at comorbidities, we can start to understand the correlations between lifestyle factors, prevalence of disease with different cohorts within our community, with attendance at A&Es and waiting lists and, and so much more. And I suppose the uses and the benefits are, are twofold. And I think we've all touched on, on these already. Part of it is around really starting, really understanding at depth the health needs of our population. And that linked data set enables us to do that. So we can look at the same patient's primary care um, uh, information alongside their attendances at A&E or their, um, whether they're on the waiting list for mental health provision. So this, once we because we have this really rich health data set, it means we can combine that then with the wider data sources from the census, from public health, from voluntary organizations, surveys, you name it. We can start to layer all of that information to build up the picture. Um, and we talk, we talk a lot about data, but um, as um, Martha and Nora both, both mentioned, it's actually about combining that with the local intelligence. What are 
GPs saying? What are the teachers saying? What are the police saying? And also then, of course, what are the residents saying? So that local intelligence and the, the public engagement is what gives us that context and and builds up that rich picture for our population so that's been one area where we've really been able to um start making changes as lauren was mentioning in the way that we're we're working and then secondly we can use it to really target activity and take that population health management approach to co-designing targeting initiatives based on inequalities known disparities and groups we really can't do everything for everyone and there isn't a one size fits all. So in in North East Hampshire and Farnham, we have a very sort of complex political landscape in terms of lots of different local authorities, lots of different ca- crossing to different counties as well. And our population varies a lot across that as well. So older shots it's within, we have the home of the British military. And then we also have um heart which has an older population so when we're thinking about someone who's recently left the army perhaps with some physical mental health concerns following their time in service they have very different needs to an 80 year old who's living alone with a chronic respiratory condition so what our platform enables us to do is to identify those cohorts, understand their needs a bit better um, and take a targeted, more proactive approach. So I think a really good example um, of of this is some of the work we've been doing around fuel poverty. Um, and this is where we've been able to layer health information with census information, with public health information to identify our patients who we've identified as being at risk of um and going into hospital um, over the winter period if if they're unable to um, keep their homes warm. So by layering up our patients with chronic respiratory conditions, living in areas of deprivation, and then also bringing in the energy efficiency data sets and looking at EPC ratings, we've been able to develop a list of patients and work with the primary care networks and local voluntary organizations to develop a pathway where these patients, so that we can try and proactively work with these patients to um, identify their needs and avoid those exacerbated health conditions um, and sort of hospital attendances over over the cold months so that's just one example i think where we're using different data sets and working in partnership taking that population health approach to anticipate a, a, a future problem and sort of manage that that current demand great thanks for that overview charlotte i, I think lauren you wanted to come in that there come in on that there it's interesting, Louis, because what this approach also shows you is where you don't know things about your population. So the platform is great where data is coded and where that coding is thorough and reliable. But where it's not and where we're getting insights through different routes, you start honing in on some issues that are essentially hidden. So a couple of good examples of that. Uh, we were hearing some real horror stories from some of our local stakeholders about Uh, families where there were caring responsibilities and these families were just doing an incredible job Um, typically an older couple who'd been married 60 years and they were thoroughly dedicated to each other um, supporting each other through health issues and asking for no help outside of that family environment and then something happens where they have to reach out and get more help perhaps a serious condition develops they're admitted to hospital one of them goes downhill very quickly and suddenly health realises what this couple have been coping with, what what they've been supporting each other through. But at no point in the data did anything come up. They weren't coded as a carer. They weren't seeking out health above average. They were coping. So how do you put together the insights and the stories that we're hearing with what that population health approach is telling you. Well, that just shows that we can't rely simply on the data. We have to also hear what our population is telling us and take really seriously some of those anecdotal stories. And also using other sources of information other than what health has got. 
So with carers, we know that there's huge numbers of people in our local area that identify themselves as unpaid carers. Um, and for some people, that will be that extreme example that I've just described. For others, it will be less of a caring responsibility, but nowhere in their GP record have they classed themselves as a carer. So we have this huge difference in numbers. Um, the same is also true of veterans, so those that have served one day or more. And there's loads of people that identify themselves as a veteran through the census, but again, through their GP practice record, we have much smaller numbers. So this approach not only tells us what we know, it tells us what we don't know. And some of the work we've been doing is trying to now build that more accurate story, work with populations and make sure that they're getting what they deserve and, and get what they need by being more willing to self-identify with their practice and, and to reach out and ask for that help. So that's perhaps been an unexpected benefit of the approach, but it's a really interesting uh, perspective on what this can achieve. Definitely. And I think, Martha, you wanted to add to that? Thank you. Yes, I, I was going to agree in terms of the fuel poverty example being an excellent one. Um, when we when we consider those human costs of fuel, the impact of fuel poverty and the excess winter deaths that are sadly increasing across the country and in particular geographical areas that we have locally where, where um, old people's poverty is significantly higher than the rest of the country, sadly. Um, as, as Charlotte was explaining, that data, being able to overlay some of that information, we're not just thinking about the human costs of those individuals, but we're also then thinking about the the wider system costs as well. And, you know, if we, if we think and we track back from hospital admissions, social care need, as, as Lauren was ex explaining, some of the carers' needs and support that those wider determinants we really need to tackle to to enable people to live a, a, a more comfortable, healthier life. Um, and it, it, it always it always springs to mind um, Sir, Sir Michael Marmot, who wrote The Health Gap, who's obviously heads up the Institute for Health Equity, spoke about why do we treat people in order to then um, send them back to the conditions that made them sick. And for me, that has always resonated. And this is a and population health in particular, these kinds of examples are, are really, really good ways of working in order to prevent that. Let's try and do more to prevent people from going back to the conditions that made them ill in the first place. Thank you. Thanks, Martha. And over to you, Jonathan. Martha, you just stole my thunder. That's exactly what I was <laughs> going to say. So to the question as we were talking is that question of why and it's about one why is it happening so we, why are we seeing a spike in respiratory related issues in a and e from areas of deprivation and I, and I totally agree with what martha just said around it's not good enough just to treat them give their antibiotics and send them back again and they keep coming back and this is where i go back to where my passion for this comes from that actually we are it's too easy to prescribe some medication and go there we are and then they come back again next year. It's not good enough. And and this approach, and we're lucky to have the, the platform that we have to understand what's going on within our local populations. Um, it's really important that we just keep asking why. Why is this person? So like I said, you know, my background as a physio, why is this person keep coming to see me with back pain that I do a bit of treatment with and they're they're okay for six months? They don't need an operation. They don't they're, they're, but we need to look further back to say well actually that the setup that they live in their house is inducive to really poor health they're not eating properly so actually when they get a back strength they've got a really physical job they're not recovering well enough and it's just taking that time that step back and, and, and i think we'll get on to kind of reasons why we don't do it but it is taking that step back to look at stuff and that's what our platform allows us to do um and, and move forward from there so yeah um, okay, so I'll open this question out to the group. Uh, what are the current enablers for this at the moment? Yes, Jonathan? I wanted to jump in there because I think there are loads of enablers. I I'm not sure we're using them. So this has to be a system-wide approach. So we'll take the given that we've got the platform. I think that having a platform is an enabler in itself, and, and we've talked about that. The biggest enabler we've got as a firmly ICB is we've got the infrastructure of a system to allow this to happen. So when you look at just our little North East Hampshire Farnham team. We've got myself coming from an acute background, Martha with public health, Lauren's done lots of work primary care, Charlotte. So we've got 
people that are coming together from different areas and a system that has the knowledge. And I think that's the big enabler that actually, if people are looking to work on their, their population health agenda, you have to take that step back and get the system in place. We're really lucky we've got the system. I don't think we probably use it enough. And I think that's one of the reasons for us doing this these kind of pieces of work to kind of increase awareness, but not one person can do it alone. So it's not the acute responsibility. It's not public health responsibility. It's all of us that work in this system. And I think until we get the system working really well, I don't think we can do it on our own, which is why everything we're saying is not kind of rocket science it's just about people talking to it together but actually you need to build the system to enable this to happen and until you've got that i i think you're going to be kind of hitting a brick wall so yeah the, the big enabler for us is we've got that in place how we use that system i think that's open for debate but yeah it, it's all about the system yeah uh, and over to you martha thank you I, I would i would say um there are elements of our system that are absolutely fantastic and, and Jonathan's absolutely right in, in terms of our partnerships, for example, and willingness to work as a partnership. I think we're very fortunate in Frimley. We've got our integrated care partnership and um, and that's very successful partners willing to come around the table. We were at an event last Thursday. Um, colleagues are willing to share information. I'm not sure that we've quite got there with sharing data yet. I think they've got a huge way to go um, and that's probably some of our maybe the, the next topic, some of the barriers we may be facing. Um, but in terms of some of the uh, areas of work, for example, joint strategic needs assessments and um, some of the web platforms that our county council colleagues have in our public health teams, they are absolutely fantastic. The public data, public source data that everybody has access to, um, Charlotte mentioned the census. Um, obviously, Jonathan has explained our connected care uh, data platform absolutely agree it's it's absolutely brilliant one of our biggest local enablers within the team for this work has been charlotte and her work and the ability to have a very skilled person with excellent skills who is able to uh, bring together all of those sources and that is quite i think that's quite unique i haven't seen that in other places um, I worked in London for 20 years. I haven't seen that. And I think that's something uh, that we should share and highlight and really celebrate. Um, but it, it it does depend on a very skilled person. So I think I'm plugging Charlotte's brilliant work. <laughs> Thank you. Jason, over to Charlotte. Yeah. Well, one of the things I was going to say is around actually sort of committing some resource and some headspace to this sort of work and thinking about, so we can get very caught up in the current budget cuts in the the strikes in the waiting list and because that's so urgent it's then very easy to forget forgets the wrong word but sort of push the future population to later that's future means problem but if we don't have that prevention now it's only going to exacerbate the challenges that we have today. So I think sort of coming back to the subject of the the um, the subject of the um, podcast, actually we being able to have a few people within the system within a place team who can commit the headspace to that. I think being able to then contribute to other conversations and bring that longer term view is really beneficial and there's other people in the system who are who are doing that as i'm focused in northeast hampshire and fine and place team but there are others across who who are able to do that and i think giving more people that space and we have some really great leadership programs in uh, frimley and in in them they talk about getting off the dance floor and i think i i do those sessions and I think well I'm always off the dance floor in a way I need to get onto the dance floor a bit more get mixed with people on the front line go and speak to the patients waiting in A&E but then having what it's really talking about is giving those people who are going to have loads of ideas on how to change things they're seeing day to day but don't have the headspace or don't have the capacity to really think about what that means in terms of long-term change so combining the sort of gaining those ideas and th think of all of the people and the diversity of e experience and expertise in the system drawing on those 
those um those views that experience is is a really key enabler every single person in the system is an enabler but it's about giving that headspace and facilitating time to to actually think longer term thanks and over to jonathan so before i get to my point i would second what martha said about having the right people so charlotte just to, not to praise her too much but having someone with the ability to go well let's look at that and yes yeah, charlotte's always telling me about getting on the dance floor so she's got some lovely dance shoes um my, my point was about the, the i think one of the other bigger enablers is we have patience for a moment in time so we've got the data we know where everything's going but sometimes that engagement with patients and and with the general public can be tricky about how we best do it i've worked on a project before around kind of uh pelvic health and pregnancy so we have a lady who is pregnant who is probably within our system for two years nine months before giving birth and then a year year and a half afterwards where they're, they're getting targets and everything so we've got a captured audience for a couple of years what are we doing with that time and i think so the, the project I've, I've done previously is around how um patients can manage their pelvic floor better during pregnancy and after pregnancy with the long-term effect in 10 years down the line there isn't the same pelvic health problem or pelvic floor problems and incontinence that, that we, we know we see we've also got orthopedic operations where someone has a total knee replacement you know they've got three to six months depending on waiting lists before they have the operation another six months afterwards where they're doing some kind of rehab some kind of work within health what are we doing and, and I think there is something about having our data and something about knowing it. But do you know what? We have someone, we have an opportunity to influence the longer term needs of that patient. So going back to the original topic of the podcast about how we manage the current challenges while looking at the longer term, that's how we do it. We, we, we give them the treatment for their knee replacement and the rehab and everything they need. But whilst they're in our system, actually can they improve their health even can we give them some food advice about uh, diet diet that makes it easier because they are there and, and i genuinely believe we're not making the best use of that so you could call that enabler or you could call it a barrier which i know we're getting into but th there's an enabler there we just need to use it a bit more okay, so yeah that's a really interesting point from my side um over to you lauren my point was quite similar um to charlotte and martha's about having headspace but i think it's also about attitude um so we could all think this is a problem for the next generation or uh, i won't be here to see the effects of what's going on in our population at the moment but actually we're all here right here and now and we can all use this approach to tell people stories now so it's very easy working in a commission organisation um, just to get overwhelmed or focused on data and targets and facts and figures. But of course, every one of those performance metrics is a whole part of our population who are all going through a difficult time and waiting for surgery or waiting for the outcome of a test. They all have a story, they and their families. And what this approach allows us to do is to tell the story for those people in a forum where they're currently silenced. So if I'm commissioning a service, I don't hear the voice of the thousands of people that are going to be using that service. I might do some patient engagement and get a few representative voices telling me a few things, but I don't see and hear and meet all of the people that will be affected or benefit from that service. But by looking at things through a population health lens, I am getting to know that population better than before. So I can in, I can understand their interdependencies. I can understand uh, how difficult it becomes to travel somewhere if you're on a low income and you don't have a car. And um, what if you're a single mum and you've got you're trying to hold down a job and you've got a child who's on the waiting list to be diagnosed with ADHD? I can start visualising and making our population come to life. I heard a quote yesterday about the difference between managers and leaders, and leaders have emotion. So they're invested in what they're doing. They care about what they're doing. And I think a population health approach can give you that. Uh, it, can, it can help us represent our population better and to do a better job than we've done before. So for me, it's not just about having the time, it's about having the right motivation and educating and helping people within our teams to develop that 
passion and to develop that motivating force. And when they have a patient's story at the forefront, when they can imagine that patient and their family, then our team's work gets a lot better. They ask better questions, they care more, they commit more, and they deliver much better outcomes for our residents. And that's what it's all about. That is why we're here. Um, so, oh, I felt like a bit of an emotional ramble there. But I, I think it's a really important outcome of this work that it changes people's perspective on what they're doing. Definitely. Um, I'm back over to you, Jonathan. So just uh, as Lauren was talking there, and it kind of brought to mind a conversation that we've had previously outside of this around the data, that there is something around really getting into that data, but actually understanding what it tells us and not what we want it to tell us. Because I, I think there's something around, as Lauren said, really engaging with with service users about what does it need. I think we will all have our subconscious bias to go, oh, actually, this is what we want it to tell us. And there's a there's a caveat with all of this that you actually need to be really open um, to go, actually, what does it tell us? Not what do we want it to tell us? Because we've had that recently with some of the services. We're like, actually, I want to invest in this particular service because it's really good and I like it the data doesn't show us whether we should or not really actually so it, it's trying to have a clear mind and and I think that's where the benefit of different minds so like I said if you look at the four of us on the call we all come with different backgrounds and we will all have a slight different bias with different things and I think that's really important that constructive challenge to go does the data tell us that or are you is that what you want it to tell us um it's really hard that is because like i said you know I, I know and i harp on about my physio days and and but actually i will be pro therapy all the time and i need to caveat that sometimes so lauren is often very good at telling me well no what about the other side of it and that's really good that constructive challenge because we'll have that and i think when you're looking at data as i said setting up a good system around you but actually making sure that your own prejudices biases aren't aren't kind of making you see things which aren't there thank you uh, i think we've covered a real range there of enablers um, but on the flip side what barriers are you facing at the moment over to you charlotte yeah i just wanted to come in because i think it's relevant to jonathan's previous point and actually something i find working with the data and then with stakeholders across something one of the barriers that i I'm always aware of, not necessarily always facing, but always aware of the barrier in that, that over-reliance on the data. And I think that also that sort of relates to Jonathan's comment about looking for what you want in the data or what you want to find or how can I make the data show what I want it to show. And it comes back also to what Lauren was saying earlier around what's not in the data, what are we not seeing? Um, and all of our health data is based on accurate coding. It, there's huge data quality issues. And we, if we don't caveat, um, if we don't caveat that, at that and keep it in mind, I think there's there's a risk that we can be drawing conclusions from data um, without that real context and and without um, without that full picture. And we one example. Um, Lauren's already mentioned the carers and the veterans, so we could look at our primary care data and say, oh, we we don't have that many veterans. It's not it's not a, a big priority for us. Then we look at the census and it, it's it's the opposite. So um, another is around the opt out. So we need to acknowledge that some of our population have opted out of the secondary use data sharing. So keeping these things in mind and always questioning the data. I think a barrier can be when someone is very willing to just that is the data, that is the truth. And that's all of that's sort of what we're going to use going forward. Thanks, Charlotte. And over to you, Lauren. Yeah, I completely agree with that point. I think we've seen that that happen already, which is why it's really important to add insights in. So that's the patient voice or the provider's voice, the stakeholder's voice. It, it's insights plus data that tells this story, not, not data alone. But I, I think we can't really address the subject of barriers, Louis, without just mentioning the national context here. So at a time of financial pressure, where performance is not as where we would like it to be as the NHS. The thing that normally people lose sight of are 
the wider determinants of health and preventative activities. That's the history. That's where commissioning cuts happen. That's where you deprioritize the work. And I think we'd all be foolish if we sat here and said that that couldn't or wouldn't or won't happen again. That's the risk. But I think the counter sort of argument to that or the way to mitigate that is for this approach not just to be about the future, but to be about the here and now. We've still got operational pressures here and now. So we know that our A&E departments are incredibly busy. We know that one-on-one and GP practices are incredibly busy. People are putting on more capacity than ever before. People are sicker than ever before. The workforce is really struggling as never before. It's a perfect storm for the next few winter months. We could take two approaches there. We could say, well, we can't do anything here and now. This is all about improving working conditions, improving housing conditions, educating people on nutrition, keeping kids in school. And all of that's incredibly important for the future. But here and now, we can use this approach to, as Charlotte was describing, identify people that are at high risk of going into hospital if we don't keep them well. We can look at the children and their families who are potentially overusing health resources and talk to them and educate them and give them alternatives. So in my mind, we don't have to stop this approach as a result of performance pressures, target pressures, monetary pressures. Actually, this approach should be one of our mitigating actions. It should be one of our solutions for all of those. We should be making our investment decisions based on this approach, um, not instead of this approach. So we're trying to passionately share the approach as much as we can and time after time show how you can use this approach to make the right decisions because it matters today, it matters tomorrow, next month, next year, next generation. It's an approach for now and for the future. Thanks, Lauren. And Jonathan, do you want to come in on that? Yeah, there was two points. So I... As Laura was talking there, I'm like, well, why is it not happening? Like, why why is the here and now the priority constantly? And I get the fact it has to be the priority. Um, but but I think, as Lauren said, it's about us sharing our stories and our passion and actually looking at it. But like I said before, it's how we create opportunities to fix the here and now whilst also kind of working the longer picture. The other thing that I was thinking of, which was my main point, one of the barriers, I think, is these are actually really difficult conversations to have with patients sometimes or service users. That if I'm in A&E and someone is presenting with a respiratory condition, how do I as a clinician have a, have a conversation with them about actually this is because of their housing, poverty? You know, So, so I think we, as a clinician, we duck that conversation. So it's the same with um, people that are obese actually, do you know what? We need to have a conversation about your weight because that's affecting your knee problem or that's affecting your diabetes. I think part of our responsibility as health leaders is how we empower people on the front line to have these conversations better as well. So we have the data, we have the time and we can create all that. But who's having this conversation? Who is going into housing to sort out some fuel poverty issues? Because they're really, really, and I've been there, you know, I've seen people with chronic kind of airways problems and they keep smoking and how do I have that conversation that's really difficult because they might then come and bite my head off and you know what I'll just duck that conversation and then suddenly we're five years down the line so I, I think there is something about when we're looking at this approach how we empower people to have these conversations and what these conversations look like I'm lucky I, I, I am in an area where I have a nice house I can kind of afford what I want to afford. How do then I relate to somebody who really can't, you know, can't afford to feed their family on a weekly basis? You know, that I can empathize, but actually, how do I have that conversation to make it feel real? And I think there is something around some, I don't know whether it's training, whether it's support, you know, actually looking at who's having these conversations and actually making sure that the conversations are relevant and they actually are effective conversations because we now because of the work that's gone we have a much better idea of our population we have an idea about what we want to do like i said we've created some time where actually we've got a patient but it's the what next what how do we actually go to that conversation and have that and i think we do as a senior leadership team need to think about how we 
help people to deliver that um because if we don't it'll all look good on reports and everything but it, it's meaningful action i think i guess what i'm trying to say yeah thank you and um, over to you martha thank you um yeah I, I was just going to sort of revisit the barriers around data sharing and our system priorities we um across our uh, many uh, uh council boroughs that we work with and nhs system um partners as well as the voluntary sector we all have very competing demands and it is quite hard to uh, to share some of the the data and insights in order to come up with really really robust uh, priorities when we have such competing demands and so that's something that we have to just continuously work on and really be open and and honest with and transparent with one another about um, some of the limitations that our data also has and and doing the right thing um, thinking about things quite pragmatically so for example around the cost of living uh, crisis obviously we, we have a moral duty to work on that and to work as a system we might not have all of the data yet um that sadly we, we will we will um inevitably start to see the the impact of it um but we we know that it is an issue and we know from our communities it's it's it, it's of great concern um and therefore we need to work on it and it relates also to to um the the discussion about um the costs for the for the system really in terms of the lack of investment in health and care and public services and the impact um, and reduction in life expectancy local uh, both locally and, and, and nationally we're seeing and that trend in terms of the lowering of, of life expectancy if we're not investing in in public services and the that is going to be a continuous um barrier for all of us and there is only there is only so much we can do proactively um, without that investment, and yeah. So we so in terms of encouraging people to work upstream and do preventative work becomes more and more of a challenge, and uh, and yet that's for me is the only way that we are going to tackle the managing demand future um, uh, impact on our. On, on our population's health um, if we if we upstream and we invest early on in those wider determinants and, and the prevention agendas. Thank you. Thank you. Over to you, Charlotte. Yeah, just, just leading on from that, I think we talk about outcomes and measuring the outcomes, measuring the impact of the investment. And often we're looking at fairly short timescales around investment. So we need to see return on investment within a year we need to see this spend within the year or there's always this sort of uh, time barrier that we have and when we're talking about improving long-term health outcomes we're not going to see that in one year we're talking about reducing activity sorry re increasing physical activity to reduce obesity levels over a five to ten year time scale and I think that's where sometimes we hit barriers in that financial sphere in the sense that we're being asked to demonstrate that return on investment, demonstrate the outcomes within a very short time scale when that's not going to be possible. So we end up measuring outputs instead of outcomes. And it means that we don't then always return back to, okay, what what impact has this actually had on the long-term health? We don't always get that opportunity because of those financial restrictions. And Lauren? Yeah, I think that's incredibly true. And that's probably one of the ways people react when they're then under pressure. They become more focused on outputs, not outcomes. I think one of the other barriers is maybe people's mindsets. So what's the difference in working in an integrated care system compared to the way that we were working before as the NHS and partners? Well, it should be that we create this partnership that is bound together to work together to solve some of these really thorny issues and these long-standing problems. That's what the integrated care strategy that we've all got, that we've all locally developed, talks about. That's what it aspires to do. I suppose the question is, have we actually moved to work in that way? Have we really removed those barriers between us all as separate organisations to achieve that strategy? And I think the truthful answer is probably not yet, but we hope and believe that we're on, 
on our way to do it. Um, so there will be some simple examples. We've talked a lot about housing conditions and how much an effect that has on people's health. Well, it's not the NHS's responsibility to sort out people's housing. We've got absolutely no responsibility for that in statute. Yet what a huge effect it has on the local population and their health. As an integrated care system, though, don't we have a responsibility to make sure that people's housing is of a good standard? If we don't, as a group of people, then how are we ever going to deliver our strategy? And the same would apply to education and fast food and green spaces and a huge long list of stuff. So I think a barrier to making this change is that if we don't move across our organisational barriers, if we don't act as an integrated care system, then we're just going to remain in our silos. We're not going to make best use of each other and we're not going to work together. We're just going to stick to what we've been set up to do in statute. And that's gone now. We need to change our way of behaving. Over to you, Martha. Thank you. I was just going to make the point and agree in terms of the, the short-termism of our funding allocations. Um, if we could only have truly collective budgets and pooled budgets across our integrated care system. Um, and if only we could do that longer term, as Charlotte said as well, the, the, the um, short term outputs rather than outcomes. We have a bit of a culture, I think, in statutory services around doing pilots, um, uh, testing things, trying a pilot and only doing it for 12 months because of our um, the way that our finances are configured. And this is so limiting in terms of really uh, making transformational and, and radical changes. We need really good upfront investment, five years across the system, collective resources. And I really believe that's, um, if, if we could have a proactive model like that around funding and, um, uh, you know, work together for future models of care, it, it that would bring us more sustainable ways of working and, and real true learning. And I think that, so for me, one of the biggest barriers is, is that short-termism and, and, and funding. So if it could be a bit, a bit more ambitious, I'd be very welcoming to that. <laughs> Thank you. Jonathan? I just want to pick up on Lauren's point and agree in the sense of, so I, so I said about an enabler being the system. The system can be a barrier to it as well in, in the sense of, you know, that mindset and and the the biggest thing that i think is actually all of us letting go of our ego a little bit and going oh that's my little bit i'm going to do that and my little bit going that and actually until we do that we'll only get so far so it, it is about the system is definitely in the enabler we can't do it on our own it can be the barrier so like i said you get the infrastructure right so we've got a good platform we've got in theory a good system is the system all working towards where it needs to be as lauren said i think we're getting there but actually does it really know what it wants to achieve um and then only then i think you can do the work so, so i guess what i'm trying to say is it's not a short fix it's not a quick fix it does take time and if you get that infrastructure behind you then we can make real real meaningful change Great. And I think there we've covered now enablers and, and the barriers, which lead us nicely on to the next question is how are we turning that insight as a whole uh, into action across Trimley? Yeah, Jonathan. So I want to give you an example of, of kind of how we're doing this. Um, so part of my remit is looking at diabetes um, and making sure that newly diagnosed diabetics have uh the the right care attention the right access to everything they need to do but also the pre-diabetic so people that we've identified um as being pre-diabetic has the right care so that so they don't get really unwell with it the, the biggest thing from my point of view doing that is that's what i was focusing on and actually then charlotte produced a report recently around kind of our children and young people and when you look at that i think particularly in our deprived areas, there's kind of 40% of year sixes are overweight at the moment. Charlotte will correct me if I'm wrong with that figure, but it, it's around that figure. They are the diabetics of the future. So actually what we are doing now is, so like I said, my diabetic head was right. Let's sort out people when they've got diabetes, the right care. And then it was like, actually, let's do some pre-diabetic work. And now actually, it's like, well, I actually, we, we need to do all that, which we've got a plan, but I need to bring the children and young people in. So, because if I don't, those year sixes who are what, 10, 11 years old, actually, they're going to be diabetics in 10 years time, if not sooner. And if I don't do anything there, then 
I'm going to have a massive problem because I can't do all the education, everything I need to do at this point. So actually the, the way we're turning it into action is suddenly going, right, how do we then, they're kind of pre, pre, pre-diabetic really, but how do we get into schools? How do we kind of actually use the insight that we've got to go, right, let's target those with a similar approach to we're doing our diabetics around the healthy eating and the, the active. So it's not like we are having to do a whole new program. It's just tweaking it a little bit. And it is... When you start looking into it, and I think I go back to what I said earlier about barriers and attitudes, is it suddenly becomes a really difficult, bigger piece of work because I'm not just focused on one bit. So, But you have to have that open mind to go, right, how are we looking at it? It was just an example of kind of how we are, how we've evolved the work over the last kind of six months, really. That's the only time we've worked on Yeah, I suppose that point for me shows how varied the platform uses as well. I know we've spoken about veterans, elderly people, and now children as well. That, that was really shocking for me that six-year-olds, uh, many of them are overweight, so it shows the real depth, doesn't it, on, on where we're using this across Frimley. Um, over to you, Martha. Thank you. I think for, for, for me, it's been, um, we've really demonstrated the impact of turning the population health uh, insights into action in terms of our priority setting. So at a very local level, just our, in our place, we've managed to come up with three very top priorities, and that's based on the collective data and insights across across our local system um, and without the platform combining that and that's what my point earlier that I hadn't necessarily seen that before the beauty of combining that NHS very localized data alongside the open source data uh, across um you know that's available nationally um that that is where where the magic happens really, that we can really see um, the whole picture. As Jonathan said, so we, we don't have children's healthy weight data on our NHS, in our NHS data. We do have it with the NCMP, with the National Child um, Weight Management Programme. And that's held, of course, in public health in the local authority. And it's only by then interrogating that and going through the local authority, we can find out which schools and where we need to work with those local communities to have that whole school approach, for example. Um, but in terms of the priority setting, we are also looking NHS Frimley wide at our core 20 and the plus and inclusion uh, uh, priorities. So obviously the core 20 being an NHS um, inequalities programme. And it, again, it's been able to help us both uh, across Frimley and uh, a local level to think about where we, we really focus our efforts because of the core 20 programme for both adults and separately for children, it's quite huge. And in order to really um, prioritise our resources, we have to be really very data driven and very smart about how, how we do that. So those are just two really exa good examples of where we've been able to um, to use to use this approach around priority setting uh, for for wider system priorities and then specific program priorities such as the core 20 thank you look to you lauren inequalities was the example i was going to share as well and i was totally put off because my husband just turned up with baked beans on toast which i've had to turn away to prioritize the podcast how cruel is that uh so charlotte mentioned before about the extreme differences in our population we work with 240,000 people and within that we have got healthy life expectancies that differ up to 10 years. Uh, we've got areas of our community that do suffer with high levels of deprivation, um, real struggles with their health, uh, lots of people living in the same home, high levels of unemployment, drug and alcohol abuse and then we've got communities who are wealthy and stable family life and they own their own home and they live in their own home for many years they've got solid employment and they have more opportunities open to them so when you say health inequalities for some it's really obvious and they know where to head uh, and for other parts of our geography those health inequalities have been quite invisible what this approach does is make them visible so the data shows that in Yately an area where no one would think that there's health inequalities. There's just a couple of roads where, because of history, because of the communities that have settled there, the children that live there are in the highest levels of income deprivation across our whole place. Now, no one would have thought that. And in Fleet, a affluent town 
the data shows high levels of different health conditions and the insights tell us about the married couples that are caring for each other and then really struggling towards the end of their life. Roll back a couple of years, I would have heard people living and working in those communities claim that there are no health inequalities. And we would always say, oh, but there are, they're just hidden. But actually, we couldn't pinpoint them. It was just a theory. What this approach does is pinpoint them. And of course, once you've made those problems visible, you can't ignore them. We're then compelled to do something about about it. Um, so health inequalities, that's another area where it stops the conversation just being about the obvious and it makes sure that every community has got an opportunity to be helped. Uh, their health inequalities may be less extreme, but they do exist and, and this approach proves that and and it shows them. Thanks over to you, Charlotte. I just wanted to share a few examples from sort of how we're using the insights, turning it into action around the current, managing the current demand. So um, we've talked quite a lot about that future around prevention, health inequalities, but actually there's some really great work across Frimley happening around sort of managing that current demand capacity and access and using the data and the insights to to inform us. So there's an example of a GP in Slough who's been using the platform to see who so he obviously can see his full um all of his patients um information he has been able to see okay i've got these 10 patients in a and e right now i've got a bit of time i'm going to call them up and find out what is why are they in a and e and he's been able to actually bring some of those patients out of a and e and talk to them and provide some extra advice and resources so was i suppose that's that's quite a um, a unique example in the sense that this GP had the time and the capacity to do that. But it just gives an example of how that insight can be used in the here and now to to manage demand. There's also, so that's around the data. There's also um, in Windsor and Maidenhead, they've been running world cafes where they're each month going to a different ward. They've been to all of the wards in the area and running engagement events and collecting that insight and turning that into action in the short term. So whether that's identifying uh, an additional educational need, identifying a transport link that's missing and is therefore proving difficult for patients to to go to a hospital attendance so it's driving up the dna rates and things like that where there are several examples of using that engagement approach using segmentation using risk um risk stratification to manage the current demand so getting ahead of quaff by um the quality outcome framework by targeting the highest risk patients and proactively doing their checks and their medication reviews before winter, that sort of thing where the insight is being used in the here and now to um, to manage the, the current demand. Brilliant. Um, and I think in terms of the podcast as a whole, we, we love to create a bit of best practice for our listeners and, of course, other NHS organisations. Um, so with that in mind, I think our final question today would be, what can people go away and do to build their own population health insights? Um, so, Lauren, would you like to come in that first? Well, hopefully you can tell from this podcast how enthusiastic we are. Uh, and also, hopefully you've picked up some tips about how easy it, it can be. I think we're convinced that we have the unique, relatively unique benefit of our connected care platform. But even without that, there are just some simple things that people can do and that everyone has got access to. Um, so everyone has got access to the census. That builds a really good picture of the communities in which we work. And everyone's got the ability to talk to those communities and to hear their experiences and their views on what the priorities are, what stumbling blocks they're facing and what life is like for them. So there are sources of information that's available to everyone. We don't have special access. I wish we did sometimes, but everyone can get access to those sources of information. And then my other top tip is just to try and go back to the basics. So when I first started in the NHS, we had the world-class commissioning launch and the commissioning cycle and for years that's what 
I was taught to do as a commissioner. You followed this cycle. You started with the needs assessment. You engaged on the options. You tried something. You evaluated it. You changed it. You made sure it worked. And the cycle just carried on. And somewhere over that time, we've lost the commissioning cycle. We do little bits of it pretty well. And then we stop or we forget to do the other bits. But that commissioning cycle is there for a reason. And our approach, this refocus on population health management, actually, it's just taking us back to that commissioning cycle. So if if we could all just re reacquaint ourselves with how important each of those actions are and take it systematically and logically, we would all do a much better job. And part of that commissioning cycle is, is to pause. So it's to get to know your population and what they need and and what they want and then to plan and we're too quick just to jump into solutions nowadays we're in a panic we've got a pressure we've got a pot we need to spend it's all go 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 actually we need to just take a moment to really understand our population if we do that we'll find things that we didn't know were there we'll reprioritize because we'll realize what we're focusing on probably wasn't the right priorities for our population and we'll we'll do we'll do a better job. So pause, get to know your population, follow your commissioning cycle, and remember that everyone's got access to the basics. Thank you, Lauren. And over to you, Martha. Thank you. Yeah, I would I would absolutely wholeheartedly agree with everyone's access to the basics. Sometimes we don't always have time or necessarily know where to look with the plethora of, of population health data and open source information out there. So I would highly recommend always starting with um, your local council's joint strategic needs assessment. Um, that would be my go-to. Wherever I would be working, I would always start with the Joint Strategic Needs Assessment and local health and wellbeing strategies. And the, usually the directors of public health's annual report will come out annually and usually has a, a section on, on local demographics and usually available online. And I think with those three sources, even if that, was, that would probably be a starting point and um, local experts. So we're very fortunate in uh, Frimley to have a, our data and insights teams, our connected care teams, and Charlotte's role, particularly in our place. Um, but in uh, not all places have that. Um, but usually, you know, consultants in public health will have a leadership role around data and insights, and, and are usually very helpful. So I would advocate uh, talking to local public health teams. Um, of course, I would say that with a public health background, but ge- genuinely, um, usually in the uh, local councils, they have usually have very good data and insights colleagues who are usually very friendly and very supportive. <laughs> okay, my top tips. Thank you. Thanks, Martha. And Jonathan? So, so I would agree with what's just been said. Um, one, there's three things I've written down. One is about when you're doing this, how you create time and space to actually think because I think that's the biggest challenge in the current climate. I think Lauren mentioned it before with the national picture going on, the, 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 everything's a hamster wheel. How you just, whether it's a half a day, just to step off that hamster wheel to go, what am I actually doing? And, and I think when you're building projects, try to build that into it. And I know it's really hard, um, but but I think if we don't do that, there, there, there'll be a massive problem. So creating that time and also creating the space to think about it, I think is really important. The other thing is, so we've made it sound relatively easy. It's not because there's lots of things we need to do, but also it is easy, if you know what I mean. So it's really hard, but it's also really easy. Nothing we are doing is groundbreaking in the sense of we're just asking the right questions and looking at the data and having a really open mind. So sometimes we fear data. Sometimes we fear what people are saying. Just open your mind and, and, and look at it. I think that that's a really key thing. Because when you start looking at it, just go where the data shows you, actually it becomes really easy. You think, do you know what? Let's just put something in place. And the last thing before I be quiet is something that Charlotte mentioned about getting on the dance floor. So I think the most important thing is to go and buy yourself some dance shoes, get on the dance floor and actually see what's going on on that dance floor. We all always talk about helicopter view, balcony view, whatever we want to talk about. And that's really, really important. See the system as a whole, as a whole. Sometimes you just need to buy yourself a pair of dance shoes and, and get on the dance floor and actually what, what is happening. I can't dance, by the way, but just... Yeah, I'd like to see, see you dancing, Jonathan. <laughs> <laughs> and then we're too shy, 
work. I feel like that's a good point to uh, finish on. Get on the get your dance shoes and get on the dance floor. But I suppose if I'm going to join that analogy, then I would say take your data to the dance floor <laughs> and uh, ask. Actually, question it and ask people: Does this make sense? Um, is does this match what you're seeing on the ground? And if not, why? What are we missing? What um, is it about the data? Is it actually that we're interpreting it differently? Um, so a very data focused one, but I, that's what I'd say is always take your data to the people who are dealing with it day to day um, and just sense check. Brilliant. And Mother, I'm not sure if you wanted to come back in. Thank you. I, I was just going to add to that. If <laughs> we all use the analogy of taking our shoes to, uh, to the dance floor, prioritising community engagement, for me, that's so essential that we overlay some of our data insights with local voices and the experts in what's happening to them, who are, they are the experts. And um, it's invaluable when we, when we do community engagement, there's so much that we would never, ever see in in the data. Um, we talked earlier about our pure poverty example. When we went out, we were um, meeting with uh, Nepali residents who had mould on their walls. You know, they're, they're the, the sections of the community who wouldn't necessarily always ask for help or, or come to uh, services or expect anything. And they're the sorts of people who have the insight and can tell us what's going on. And also great assets in terms of the community mobile local communities responses and how local communities will be able to help one another so and take some of the pressure off statutory services too and so I would just you know um, like to advocate real proactive work around community engagement involving local people in the data and insights and in that um, uh, joint solution thank you great and finally back to you Jonathan Sorry, I know I said I'll shut up, but I just got one more thing to say. Do you know what? It's real. It's really good fun and it's really good, really rewarding. Uh, and that's what I wanted to get across to people. Actually, as a clinician, spending all my life in the acute, suddenly in this role and look, taking this approach, I'm like, actually, it doesn't have to be like it's always been. And it's really great fun and it's really rewarding if we get it right. So just go for it is what I'd say. Brilliant. Um, before we end today's podcast, I'd like to say a huge thank you to you all uh, for joining today and sharing your thoughts and insights on this. Um, personally, I've found it massively interesting uh, and learned a lot today. Uh, once again, on our podcast today, we've had Charlotte Jackson, Martha Early, Lauren Pennington, Jonathan Shepherd, and they're all from Northeast Hampshire and Farmham place team at Frimley ICB. Uh, if you are hiring for new technical roles or looking for a role yourself, feel free to get in touch with us here at Evolution. Or if you or anyone else you know would like to be featured on a future podcast, drop me a message on LinkedIn. I am Louis. You can find me on LinkedIn, as I mentioned, or alternatively, visit us at evolutionjobs.com forward slash UK forward slash NHS. Thank you again to all our guests. Thank you for listening. And we hope you can join us next time.